0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your glory revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ in the transfiguration, and above all, we thank you for your glory revealed in the cross, and we pray that you would help us to treasure this cross and this glory in the face of Jesus, that we might live lives in imitation of him for your service. We pray all of this in the name of the, of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in our final week of our Epiphany sermon series called The Baptized Life. And we're rushing towards Lent, which begins, if you can believe it, this coming Wednesday. I think my head is spinning. Ash Wednesday, you might be aware, this year coincides with Valentine's Day, which is a little bleak. But it's perhaps a fitting Christian gloss on this secular holiday that puts the spotlight on romantic love. To be told, from dust you are and to dust you shall return— doesn't exactly inspire romantic feelings in me. I don't know about you. I mean, to each his own, right? But it's nevertheless appropriate for the purpose of Lent is to remind us that our lives are vapors, as Ecclesiastes tells us, that we must number our days because we have a limited time on this earth to repent from our sin and our self-absorption and to give ourselves to the purposes of God as they are revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And the bidding prayer of Ash Wednesday tells us of the need which all Christians continually have to renew their repentance and faith and to make a new beginning of that repentance. All of our loves, and most especially perhaps our romantic love, need to be purified by the divine suffering love of the Trinity which holds nothing back, submitting even to death on a cross for our sakes And which calls us to repent and submit to suffering love for the healing of the world. That is your weighty and magnificent and glorious calling this morning, people of God. So in this, our final week of the Baptized Lives series, we turn to the transfiguration. And what I want to argue this morning is that this passage, understood in its context in the Gospel of Mark and in the canon of Holy Scripture, is the perfect text to lead us into Lent. And it braces us not only with a vision of the costliness and the glory of Christ's sacrifice, but the glory and the costliness of discipleship. We need to understand not only what this moment in Mark's gospel says about Christ and his transfiguration, that the refulgence of God's glory shines forth in his face. Even his clothes, it says, were transfigured. But also why Mark includes it. Why even tell this story in the first place? Is it just a cool story? No. Also, why he places it where he does in his gospel. By far, the most important element in the shaping of the gospels, and in particular Mark's gospel, is that everything in the narrative leads up to the cross. They were described, the gospels were described by the German biblical scholar Martin Kaler quite profoundly as passion narratives with extended introductions. This is truer in Mark actually than it is of the other Gospels because Mark's Gospel has this frenetic, almost frantic pace. It's driven in in terms of its literary qualities by this one word, immediately. Everything happens, immediately. Jesus does something, immediately. He says something to these people. Mark's Gospel is kind of like time-elapsed photography or like a sequence of quick cuts in a movie designed to drive forward the plot. Mark's Gospel has that same kind of quality as literature and everything in the narrative of the gospel rushes towards the cross everything jesus says and does is ordered to it and everything he says and does must be interpreted in light of it the cross quite simply is the climax of this story and so this morning our task is to understand the transfiguration itself in light of the cross that jesus has to bear Peter tells us in our epistle reading this morning that he was privileged and honored to be an eyewitness of Christ's majesty in this moment. As Christ's person and even his garments are shining with this deep interior luminescence, and he's surrounded by the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. They're there because they point forward to him. They, their glory is but a shadow of his glory. We need to understand that this one, this Jesus, who Peter says was honored and exalted in this moment, is the one who in just a few short chapters will mount the cross and die the death of a political criminal. Naked and ashamed, with the guards dividing their garments, his garments among themselves. Devastated by the abandonment of his friends. The words of the psalmist, the words of lament upon his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this man could not be the Messiah, according to the Jewish lights of this age. The Messiah, according to the Jews, needed to be a conqueror, a great hero, dispatching the pagan overlords who threatened the purity of God's people in his temple. And also... According to the law in Deuteronomy 21, anyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. How could this man be the bearer of God's glory? That's the question that's set before us in the Gospel of Mark. When we see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ in the transfiguration, Mark is telling us, this has to be a glory that is capable of encompassing as well the devastation of the cross. I think we do well to pause here for just a moment to reflect on the very idea of glory. What is it? We're not particularly attuned to this idea in our, in our age, though almost every culture has a profound conception of what glory is and what is most to be glorified. My definition for you this morning is this. Glory in its most basic sense is the beauty, the splendor, and the radiance of a person or thing that elicits astonishment Admiration, honor, reverence, and even terror from those who witness it. Let me say this one more time. In its most basic sense, glory is the beauty, the splendor, the radiance of a person or thing that elicits astonishment, admiration, honor, reverence, and even terror from those who witness it. So very recently, I was able to appreciate the glory of Niagara Falls. Now, I wouldn't have gone up there, except that I had to get an emergency passport, right? I was uh, taking a little trip outside of the country, and I suddenly realized my passport had expired. Has anybody ever had this experience? Not great. So, but we, we drove up to Buffalo to get the emergency passport, and we're like, hey, we're only half an hour from Niagara Falls. You know, I mean, I haven't heard great things, but, uh, but I should go see it. And when I went there, you guys, you guys are telling lies. Niagara Falls is glorious. It's amazing. There's this rushing river and it it falls off this cliff and it's amazing and 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 just full of splendor and it twinkles and it's amazing, right? And you've got all this power of pure nature kind of rushing off. Clearly a glorious natural phenomenon. But we can also appreciate glory in the graceful moves of a ballet dancer or of LeBron James on the court or Nick Foles on the football field. I mean, really, to recognize glory is just to have the ability to be shocked and filled with wonder at the encounter with splendor. But Scripture actually takes us a little further than this. In Scripture, to be able to perceive glory is above all to be sensitive not just to the external form of a thing, but to be attendant to the radiance of interior moral beauty, of character pouring itself out on our behalf. According to Scripture, as Rowan Williams puts it, "glory is a word that expresses the internal solidity of some reality." The Hebrew word for glory, kabod, actually means weight or magnitude. Just as we might, you know, convey the moral gravitas of a person by calling them a weighty person. C.S. Lewis famously captures this meaning in one of the greatest essays written in the entire 20th century: "The Weight of Glory." By the way, if you haven't read that essay, go read it. It's amazing. I'm telling you, one of the best essays of the 20th century. Glory might be associated with wealth or power or reputation. It sometimes is in Scripture. But in Scripture, preeminently, it refers to the interior life of a person, of the state of their hearts, of their character, as it does in Psalm 108. We see David saying there, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all of my glory. Glory. But according to scripture glory above all belongs to God in his works of creation and judgment and redemption not to us so lord not to us be the glory but to your name be the glory for your unfailing love and kindness yes god is glorious god's glory is revealed when he scatters the armies of the proud and he frustrates the imperial ambitions of the nations when he delivers the weak and the lowly in their humility. We see it show up in these visible but fleeting ways in what scholars call theophanies, these momentary divine encounters like the burning bush or Elijah's encounter with God in the cave that we read about this morning. But there was one place in Israel where God's glory was supremely concentrated. It was most persistently experienced in the tabernacle and in the temple. One thing have I asked of the Lord, says our psalm appointed for today, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. To see His glory in the temple was the greatest rapture that any faithful Israelite could imagine. God's glory was often described as a cloud that descended and rested upon the sanctuary. And the gravitas, the weightiness of God's glory was so great that it overwhelmed the priests and the people in the temple. 2 Chronicles 5 has this beautiful story. It says, "...when Solomon finished the work of the temple, the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever." And that in the midst of that praise, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The inner radiance of God's glory was so profound, so great, so weighty that it knocked the people off their feet. So this is what we should have in our sort of our our, our viewpoint when we're looking at this text from this morning in Mark chapter 9 when Peter and James and John accompany Jesus up the mountain by the way, it's no accident that it's a mountain that they ascend with Christ because another notable place where God's glory was most marvelously manifest was at Sinai when Moses climbs the mountain and the glory cloud of God descends and covers him and it covers the mountain. So when Jesus ascends the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he is himself transfigured and the cloud descends, they are bowled over just as Moses was bowled over, just as the priests of the temple were bowled over. Verse 6 says that Peter spoke as he did because he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Remember I said one of the things glory does when we encounter it in its truest forms is it elicits terror. It's an appropriate response. It's shocking. It's surprising. It's terrifying. Peter's reaction here is not simply irrational. And I think there's value added to us from understanding what he's really talking about. One of the most disheartening aspects of the common life of post-exilic Israel is that Ezekiel's vision of the glory departing the temple is their reality on a day-to-day basis. Even when the temple is rebuilt, the people weep because the glory is not there. So Ezekiel's vision of the glory of the Lord departing of the temple was seemingly this permanent departure. And yet, as Michael Ramsey points out, during the literature produced in the inter- intertestamental period in Israel, there's a prophecy that emerges that God would once again come near to the Israelites and make his glory manifest among them again, that he would permanently Tabernacle with them. And Peter looks around and he sees Moses and Elijah, and here's Jesus with his inner identity being revealed. Lord, does this mean that you're tabernacling with us again? That the glory will be permanent? And the answer, heartbreakingly, is not yet. Not until Jesus has done what he came to do. But the text tells us that this vision is is for the apostles to prepare them for what is coming. What Jesus is about to endure and what they will have to endure if they are willing to follow him. He appears before them, it says in verse 2. He appeared to them, it says in verse 4. Everything is directed to them. And in the moment of transfiguration, the, the, the voice from the heavens comes, just as it did with Jesus' baptism. But you remember in Mark chapter 1, when the voice speaks To Jesus it says, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. But here it says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This vision is for the apostles, for the disciples. The transfiguration actually is introduced by Jesus' proclamation in verse one of chapter nine. He says this, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The glory of God does not remain upon Christ because he has not yet finished the work that he set out to do. He has to set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, the text says. He must carry out his commission, the thing that he came to do. But in his death and resurrection, we will see the glory and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in Jesus. In His cross. Because on the cross, He engages in a pitched battle, in a cataclysmic confrontation with the power of sin and of death, and He defeats it. That is glorious. The glory of God, Jesus is saying to us in chapter 9, verse 1, is as much visible in the cross for those with eyes to see as it is in the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is the event, according to Peter, that illuminates the glory of the suffering of the cross. As he says to us in our epistle from today, you will do well to be attentive to this, the transfiguration, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is the thing that will enable you to hold on when things look bleak and you are following Jesus. The inner radiance of God's goodness is most profoundly visible, Mark and Peter tell us this morning, when we see the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. The transfiguration, though, also calls us, as it called Peter, James, and John, to attend to the glory of the cost of discipleship. If we are to follow Christ, we must learn to glory in what is most glorious. In the passage immediately preceding ours this morning, Jesus feeds 4,000 and the disciples. This amazing miracle of God, this amazing inbreaking of the kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom becoming present in this one fleeting moment. But Jesus follows this incredible miracle with a hard word. He said, if anyone would would come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross and follow me. The cost of following Jesus is imitation. The cost of following Jesus is total allegiance. We don't get to hold back anything from him. He goes on to say, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Can we learn from Jesus not only to see the glory of God revealed in His cross, but also in the cross that we will bear if we imitate Him, if we confess Him, if we live in accordance with that confession? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. For many centuries in American life, The phrase, bear your cross, has simply meant endure suffering without complaining. Stiff upper lip. That's not what Christ means here. That is not glorious. Not all suffering, number one, is created equal. Suffering that comes from injustice, suffering that comes from our own sinfulness, that's not glorious. What is glorious is Christians working with all of our might to overcome those kinds of suffering. What is not glorious is suffering with a stiff upper lip. The scriptures teach us to lament our suffering. What is glorious is our willingness to follow Christ in suffering for his name, for his sake. Peter says elsewhere in his first epistle if you are insulted, For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's that word again glorify God in that name by your confession, by your living out faithfully that confession. Glorify the name of Jesus Christ. This is the lesson of the transfiguration. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and nowhere more than in the cross through which He defeats the power of sin and death for us and through which He wins us to allegiance to Himself. Our minds and our hearts need to be trained to seek glory in that which is most glorious. The cross of Christ and our imitation of Christ and taking up our crosses. It's not that we should not see glory in the lesser things, but we must be trained, our hearts must be trained to see and to profess that the glory of God is most magnificent, most radiant in the cross, in the suffering love that He gives to us there. Jesus set his face resolutely toward the cross to suffer and die there to liberate us from our sin, that we might come and follow him. So as we move into Lent this coming week with Ash Wednesday, how will you keep the majesty of the cross before you? Driven by the glory of the cross, how will you make a new beginning in repentance? What practices will you take on to purify your vision to be able to see the glory in the cross? What might you give up that you might feel the longing and the desire that only the radiance of Christ can satisfy? Because he alone, as St. Augustine once said, is beauty ever ancient and ever new. Only in him does the glory of God shine brightest. Amen.